Hello and welcome to Let Me Explain You a Thing, the podcast where I explain you a thing. My name is Andrew and I'm driving to work, recording in my car, and today we'll be talking a little bit about a Song of Ice and Fire characters that were cut from their respective TV shows. Either characters that were too minor or too convoluted or brought in other story storylines and arcs that could not be made to fit into either Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon. And House of the Dragon might be a little bit too early to call, but I'll see if there's anything in there that I can uh, make note of. So, a little backstory. I remember as a kid, when I saw the first Harry Potter movie, I was a big Harry Potter fan at that time, uh, when I saw the first movie, I obviously loved it, but I was also wondering, why not, is there any reason they can't use the book as the script? You know, obviously, to, to adapt a book to uh, film or television, you have to tighten up some dialogue, you know, you're going to drop all the... Uh, some parentheticals or some uh, recollections that characters have. Some whole characters and themes might be scrapped uh, just to, to keep the, the pace on track. And of course, there would be a lot of uh, internal monologue that has to be thrown out unless you're going to use a uh, uh, an omnipresent narrator in the story, in the movie. It would be a little awkward, so we're not doing that. Um, anyway, with A Song of Ice and Fire, these books were specifically written by George R. R. Martin, who at that time had spent uh, 10 or 15 years as a screenwriter. I don't know what screenwriting credits he has other than this show called Beauty and the Beast, which... I don't hear anybody talk about anymore outside of its connection to George R. R. Martin. Um, so, would not have known about it if not for my deep dives on, on Gurm. But anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he had always been a sci-fi, primarily sci-fi writer, had written many short stories and a few novels to this point. And I think he was maybe feeling a little constrained by Hollywood. Obviously, there are uh, limitations on what you can put on screen, what the budget calls for, what the studio will allow. And so I think he was on some level with A Song of Ice and Fire, writing A Game of Thrones, returning to his roots a little bit, uh, trying to write a fantasy story with a lot of characters and, you know, just imagining it being adapted, some very complex complex sets, um, and uh, almost unadaptable uh, visuals and uh, details that, that would make turning his stories into film or television basically impossible. This was also at the time when CGI was kind of up and coming. 
Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, okay. Well, so A Game of Thrones was published in 1996. Probably the best example to date of successful CGI was 1994's Jurassic Park. <coughs> and what after that? I guess you had like Dragonheart might be along the same lines. Uh, I want to say that was 96 or 97, maybe 95. Yeah, probably 95 or 96. Anyway, so we, you know, captured incredible creatures with CGI uh, to date. And, you know, I think Martin was maybe aware of that, but was was probably not really thinking in terms of selling these stories for adaptation to film, because at that time, they would not be, like, the, the prestige TV drama did not exist yet. Um, HBO was going strong, but I don't think there was any thought of turning Game of Thrones into a miniseries or a, a TV show of any kind. Um, perhaps more so looking at it as a possible movie or film trilogy or something like that, but the the books don't don't map exactly onto films, and I'm trying to imagine how the first book could be, because so much is building, 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 and there's kind of three arcs of the main series, and, you know, A Game of Thrones has a climax, it stands alone as a book, but it's also certainly building towards A Storm of Swords, um, or at least A Clash of Kings, so I don't know how you could put a button on it that would really get studios interested and invested in a, in a you know, a multi-movie um, deal, and how you could condense these books to a single movie without the pacing being absolutely frenetic and so many characters thrown at you and whatnot. It would, it would be a very singular thing, if accomplished. Um, anyway, pulling back a little bit, so the, the Game of Thrones, I mean, it was, you, you hear that A Song of Ice and Fire was almost written to be unadaptable. So, with that in mind, it's maybe not surprising that there are some characters and storylines that were scrapped. Um, I'll, I'll just kind of go stream of consciousness and see what we come up with, but very first that comes to mind is Lady Stoneheart. <laughs> oh, fuck. Um... So this is also going to have uh, spoilers for spoilers for um, A Song of Ice and Fire. I think all the published books in the main series, and we'll maybe touch on some of the, like, Fire and Blood and some of the side texts if I talk about House of the Dragon. Um, probably not going to spoil Dunk and, Dunk and A. Um, but yeah, so, so there it is. But to begin with, Lady Stoneheart. Sort of major spoiler um, in that... Lady Stoneheart is Catelyn Stark, uh, raised from the dead, uh, by, directly by Beric Dondarrion. Um, he, 
had been raised from the dead many times by Thoros of Mir, uh, the red priest of R'hllor who could. Um, and at some point, you know, the Brotherhood Without Banners finds Catelyn's body uh, after the Red Wedding, the phrase dumped her in the river, which I believe is the Green Fork. And they come upon her body. Beric gives her sort of the kiss of life. Um, it's kind of a mysterious scene that we don't see firsthand. We just kind of hear about. Um, so Beric gives her the kiss of life, and he dies permanently, it seems, this time. And he passes his life essence, what remains of it, in any case, he's, he's spoken to different characters at different points about how each time he's raised, he comes back a little less. And so he passes his life essence over to Cat, who comes back as a, a, a zombie hell-bent on revenge. Um, her last moments were of madness, she had, I mean, her final months were, were leading up towards that. Um, she had lost Arya, Sansa had been married off to Tyrion, um, and was firmly at that time in the, the keeping of, uh, the Lannisters. Bran and Rickon were presumed dead, and in her last moments, she sees Robb Stark, her son, her eldest son, uh, killed before her very eyes and very tragically too like you know he he showed such promise he had, he was so beloved um by his bannermen and in his last moments like a a scared boy he calls out for gray wind um <laughs> side note and this is pretty dark but uh, there are those who speculate that Rob Stark was actually killed twice, once in his own body and a second time uh, as he uh, warged into Greywind, saying Greywind was kind of his spirit, you know, uh, casting out for his direwolf. Um, and then, of course, you know, Grey Greywind was then uh, killed in the kennels of, uh, the twins. So, pretty brutal, pretty miserable. Um, yeah, if that's the case. I mean, he had never warged before. He was not one of the more telepathically gifted Stark children. Um, obviously, number one, you got Bran. Number two, probably Arya. Arya has a lot of dreams where she's warging Nymeria from Bravos. so very powerful connection there, if so, um, which is also interesting because she had probably the least connection to her direwolf, um, over the course of time because she had to, um, shoo Nymeria away after she bit Joffrey. Um, I guess Rickon might be up there as well. He, he's a very wild and feral little boy, and it's probable that um, it's 
probable that his dire wolf, Shaggy Dog, who is also, like, this black wolf with wild green eyes, has some kind of impact or influence telepathically going the other way against this, again, this three-year-old boy, this young mind who does not have the strength to resist. Um, so, seems very possible. But anyway, uh, yeah, so Cat, a little bit jumping back to the Red Wedding. Um, so Cat, like, kills uh, Jingle Bell, who is one of... Um, who is one of the, the children of Walder Frey, but Frey doesn't really care. Like, he'll trade his life for the Starks. Cat thinks at first that she'll take him hostage um, and, you know, broker their release, but Rob is killed, and so she kills Jingle Bell. And, uh, and then is killed in turn. Um, and she kind of brutalizes herself in the last moments. She, like, tears at her eyes and face. Um, and, yeah, so when she comes back, these her last moments are all that seem to survive in her, and she is... Uh, just bent on killing any Freys, anyone attached to the Red Wedding at all, any Lannisters, just anyone, and she's an indiscriminate force of nature. I don't really know why they didn't choose to adapt that to the show. Um, it would have been more of a, a thing for Brienne to do. I think in around season five, six, Brienne is... Like, season four, I think she spends that wandering um, the Riverlands looking for Sansa. Um, she, you know, yeah. She doesn't really have much to do at some point after she encounters the Hound and Arya. Um, which is kind of a, a cool twist from the source material. Uh, she encounters someone who's wearing the Hound's helmet and posing as the Hound, but is not actually the Hound. Is one of the, the mercenaries who was part of the Brave Companions, the company that uh, takes her and Jamie uh, captive and cuts off Jamie's hand. Yeah, I think Lady Stoneheart would have had a role in the show, and I think that was maybe a first sign that the showrunners were not making all the right calls, because Brienne certainly could have used something. Um, and I think... I don't know how Lady Stoneheart's story ends up. We're just not sure, but... And it seems kind of hard to predict. Like, she's a force of nature. She's no longer Lady Cat, so you know, will, who will she, who will fall into her path next? What will the Brotherhood Without Banners be doing? 
how will they be, how will that storyline be tied up? Just no, it's not clear. But I think she could have had performed some role in the show. Uh, excuse me. Um, yeah, next, the, uh, not the Brotherhood, the, um, lot of fucked up, just awful characters in that crew. Um, they, they're a very interesting bunch. Um, and I think I see why they were kind of just flattened into Bolton men, because their kind of wanton cruelty really fits with the Boltons. Um, I think the only reason they weren't Bolton men in the original, in the books was because the Boltons don't quite have control of Hall at the time that... Or the Boltons aren't known Lannister collaborators at the time that, for example, you know, Jamie and Brienne are taken captive. So maybe there's some issues with the timing of all that. I think that could kind of be kludged. Or you could just say, like, hey, they're just random guys, you know... Um, Highwaymen, or you know, broken men, or whatever, out reaving in the the Riverlands, um, deserters from whoever's army, whatever you want, um, or it, you know, you could sort of make a game out of like, who are you working for, you know. Uh, and, and Jamie and Brienne trying to figure out how they can offer them a reward. Obviously, Jamie's go-to is, hey, we have money. I'll give you money if you let us go. Um, but maybe to get his hand cut off, he offers the, um, the support or the he kind of, like, offends them by thinking they're on a, a different side than they are or something, or perhaps thinking, you know, oh, it's Lannisters versus, it's Western men versus Northmen. Um, here's a, uh, you know, these, I've correctly identified that these are Northmen, but he doesn't have the, the context that these Northmen are now in alliance with the Western men and insults them in some way as Northmen. Um, or offers something that they already have, or who knows, um, thinks he's being clever and just doesn't have all the information, so he can't. Um, I think that would really work. That would be a way to kind of tidy things up, and you don't really need to get the Brave Companions involved. Like, they're kind of they, you know, 
break up and cause havoc throughout the Riverlands. And in A Feast for Crows, some of Brienne's uh, major conflicts are against members of the Brave Companions. But they're also, like, coded in kind of a weird way as, like, uh, Essosi, so, like, kind of as foreigners. And I think... Game of Thrones, the show, did not do a terrific job of, you know, like, I guess the all the, the free cities, um, the Dothraki, uh, Slaver's Bay, they were all kind of smoothed over to be, like, non-white people, like diverse non-white people, but, like, you know, there's just kind of not the same, like, they, they were all kind of made out to be, like, the same people groups, you know, and that's not exactly accurate. Like, Essos is a massive continent. It's a disservice, really, to the source material, but also to the idea of, like, a, a sort of, you know, Pan-Asian or Eurasian sort of, uh, you know, continent in this fantasy world. Um, again, just kind of smooths them all over, which you know, definitely complicates making the Brave Companions out to, you know, be each of their separate... Like, I don't think they ever really comment on, in the in the books, uh, details like the, the Tairashi, like, having forked beards that they dye different colors. I don't think that appears in the show ever at all. Like, Dario Naharis, for example, is Tairashi, or at least passes himself off as Tairashi. And you know, has a blue beard, for example, which I get would look kind of silly in the show. But then again, you know, one of the, the major criticisms Martin had for A Game of Thrones and a fix that he had requested for House of the Dragon was that the show be a little bit more colorful, use more heraldry. Um, like, you just don't see Lannister's really wearing bright crimson, um, everyone kind of wears, like, browns and grays, and, you know, there's just less color, which is not really period accurate if you're trying to base this off the High Middle Ages, but also you know, kind of a disservice to the book, where the, the color imagery, animal imagery, that heraldic symbolism is all, like, very important. So anyway.
Um, yeah, I guess back to side characters, got sidetracked. Another major one is Aegon Targaryen. Uh, <clears throat> the fandom is a little split on Aegon Targaryen. They, some believe that he's a fake, that he is, uh, Lysine or, um, the son of Illyrio Mopatis, uh, the Pentashi merchant and magister who, uh, shelters Danny at the very start of the show, Danny and Viserys. Um, Illyrio has, you know, definitely has a stake in, uh, young Aegon, but it's unclear whether he is genuinely the son of Rhaegar Targaryen. For that to be true, they would have had to have swapped babies and spirited him away out of King's Landing during the sack of King's Landing um, that left many um, Targaryens and Targaryen supporters dead. Among them, uh, Elia Martell and uh, her daughter Rhaenys. Um, and the Mad King, for that matter. So, anyway, um, So Aegon has this arc that is introduced in A Dance with Dragons, which is a weirdly late time in the story. I think, in a meta-narrative kind of way... So basically, he is introduced as this perfect prince who has been raised to be a good king, who has been raised among the small folk, um, who has had any tyrannical monarchial impulse drilled out of him, um, who is, you know, smart and courteous and just and all these good qualities, and basically Varys's plan throughout the entire series, as it's revealed at the, the epilogue of uh, A Dance with Dragons, is that he's been trying to pit the realm, major powers of the realm against one another and weaken any kind of stabilizing force, that basically he is sort of an accelerationist and as well as a, um, um, utilitarian, hard utilitarian, who will sacrifice many lives and you know, just sort of position the realm in a very bad place uh, just to make it easier for this prince, Aegon Targaryen, to uh, take his mercenary companies over, win the Iron Throne, and... Um, sort of mop up what's left of the, the Seven Kingdoms and start putting things to rights. So, I think, like, in a metatextual way, this is, is pretty clear that because of how late this is, it 
used were sort of not meant to be sympathetic to Aegon. At this point, there have been five books of uh, Danny thinking about getting to Westeros to take back the Iron Throne. Uh, we've seen, you know, a number of claimants to the Iron Throne who, many of whom are more sympathetic, like Stannis. Um, more sympathetic than, say, Joffrey. Um, we see Tommen, who obviously has some, some bad actors around him, but like the Tyrells, uh, Kevin Lannister, all like decent folks trying to, trying to do right. Um, and trying to bring Cersei in line as well, who is, you know, the major, uh, negative, um, bad actor, you could say. So, yeah, like, you could say things aren't headed in a great direction, but, like, the fact that Varys is trying to undermine all of their work, like, is that setting them on a better course. Um, there certainly are Targaryen restorationists among the lords of Westeros, loyalists to the Targaryens who, if they had a chance, would put a Targaryen back on the Iron Throne. But you never know. Um, so I think Aegon's purpose is kind of to come out of nowhere, a bit too late for us to really care about him. And then to... basically from there complicate the situation for Danny. Whether she goes mad and destroys King's Landing in the end or not is, you know, up for debate, but that would... That would be one path. Like, say Aegon gets in, takes the Iron Throne, just as Varys had set him up to do. Um, everything works out for for him. And then Danny's like, what the fuck? Like, you literally stole my thunder. Especially if Aegon, you know, is already married to somebody else. It looks like Ariane Martell might beat her to the punch on that. Um, speaking of another uh, book-only character. <sighs> oh boy, it goes deep. Yeah, so Aegon, uh, I guess they just decided that it was a little too much complication, and it is, and that's kind of on purpose, I think. Um, but that takes away a lot of what Tyrion was up to in book five, so, let's see, um, what next? Yeah, let's go to Dorne. So, Doran Martell is killed prematurely, um, betrayed by, uh, Oberyn's paramour, uh, Ilaria Sand. Um, 
Ilaria seems to, she makes a case against the cycle of vengeance in, um, in Feast for Crows. Uh, this is after Oberyn is killed, and none more in this more than her, but, you know, she also is against the other Sand Snakes going to, uh, King's Landing and, you know, or, like, going to Old Town and setting shit on fire. Um, she's also, this is something that's kind of glossed over in the show, she is the mother to four, the four youngest Sand Snakes, who are all, like, young girls. Um, Oberyn only has daughters, uh, and she's the, the mother to the four youngest. The oldest, I think, is, like, 12 or something, and she goes on this journey with Ariane Martell at the start of Winds of Winter from the, the preview chapter we have released about Ariane at this point. Um, and she's kind of sort of get presented as like maybe a Lyanna Stark parallel, uh, a window into how some of the other like precocious young tomboyish girls might have behaved under similar circumstances. Um, so, and I, I believe that's Elia, um, named, of course, for Oberyn's late sister. Um, anyway, so those are the four youngest sand snakes. Um, Elia... Doria, Loreza, I forget the other one. I don't know the order, other than Elia being the oldest as well. But then there's the, so those are the four that Oberyn has with Ilaria Sand. Before he met Ilaria, there were daughters that he had with, um, first with a sex worker in Old Town. Um, that's, uh, have a hard time. Um, Obara, who is kind of a brutish woman with, uh, she uses a spear as her weapon. Um, and she's the one most in favor of just causing widespread violence <laughs> in the wake of Oberyn's murder. Um, there's Lady Nymeria, who was the daughter of Oberyn and a Valentine um, noblewoman. And Lady Nim is, uh, her weapon is poison, I believe. She's been trained in politics. So basically, Oberyn has these, these many skills that he trains each of the Sand Snakes in, and they all kind of... It's not just that they're this girl team that all has a different weapon. Like, they're not Power Rangers. Um, they each are given a specific skill of his. So, Obara is the best fighter, and that's kind of her thing. Um, Nymeria is... 
Nymeria is trained in politics. Um, she knows how to use poison, but she's also, because she is a savvy operator, um, she's sent to King's Landing to take up the uh, small council seat that was offered to Doran Martell. Um, Doran, of course, is too gouty to, to travel. So, you know, who knows what, what she'll get up to in King's Landing. Um, next up we have uh, Sorella, who is the daughter of Obara, or Oberyn, and, um, and a Summer Islander captain. And she is in disguise as Alaris. Um, it's literally Sorella backwards. Um, so she's posing as a boy, and she's right now an, uh, an acolyte at the Citadel. She's training to be a maester, so she has the book-learning uh, skill from Oberyn. And she is getting involved in some magic, I'll tell you. Um, glass candles and so forth. That's not a character that was cut from the show, but glass candles are pretty significant uh, magical prop that does not make it into the show and would definitely complicate things way too much, but it's this magical... There are these magical artifacts that date back to Valyria and were used to communicate across great distances and uh, enter people's dreams to influence them on a subliminal level. It opens the door to all kinds of bad behavior um, that, that glass candles exist. Um, one of them is in the keeping of Marwyn, the mage, who is an archmaester at the Citadel. He's kind of a atypical maester. He um, believes fully in magic and is not against magic like many of the, the many archmaesters have been. He's the one who kind of blows up the lid off the maester conspiracy by explaining to Sam in Old Town that the world the Citadel is building has no place for dragons or, you know, magic or any of these things.
So, um, yeah, Sorella's getting involved with the Citadel. Yeah, Marwin, another interesting cut character. He, I think he would have worked in the show as, you know, he is instantly recognizable as a uh, maester cut from a different cloth. He could have been the guy that taught Sam how to cure grayscale or something or help Sam find the secret. It would have been, anything would have been better than Sam, like, just deciding to, you know, peel off the grayscale and call it a day. Or figuring that out on his own. Like, he's smart, but come on. Um, okay, so Sorella. And then the, the next Sand Snake is... People speculate that there's a Septa who's traveling with uh, Prince Aegon, or Young Griff, as he's as he's called um, in secret. Um, this is Septa Lamore. So Tyrion gets to know her, notices that, um, kind of weirdly notices that she has uh, at one point. Um, she's, like, bathing or changing or something, and he notices that she has stretch marks, so we're given to understand that, uh, she has given birth in the past. A little unconventional for a septa. Usually they, uh, women join, uh, the faith, um, you know, when they're at marrying age and not, you know, after having a family. Um, but it points to an unconventional origin for Septa Lamar. A lot of people believe that she is a Shara Dane. I don't think so. I think she, if anybody, is the mother of uh, Tyene Sand, which would point to a possible second Dornish connection between uh, the Dornish and the Aegon cause. So Tyene Sand is schooled in the faith. Um, I forget what she's up to at this point in the story. But yeah, so, I mean, the Sand Snakes are not just like... I think they, they're only three or something, and they're just random young women who are violent, and they're basically all Obara Sand, but that's not who they are, that's not how they function. Um, so it's not that they were cut from the show, just that they were handled very poorly by the show. And then they were kind of killed off randomly. Um, I think by Euron. Weird.
but it was at that point in the show where they were kind of like, okay, we gotta cut some of these, trim some of these threads here. So in the end, they didn't really help accomplish much other than killing, killing their half-brother, Tristan Martell.
also his second son, so he's not changing the succession to Ariane by sending Quentin to Slaver's Bay. It's just confusing. Bye-bye.